want to give our attention to Titus chapter 1. And uh, if you're here this morning and you need a Bible, uh, if you raise your hands, we have a couple of brothers and sisters who are uh, passing out Bibles. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'd be glad to get you one. Right down front, Thierry. Uh, down front, our sister Hannah. Keep them high until they get there. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that Bible, make it your own, uh, write your name in it, read it, let it read you, and um, walk by the truth that's in it. Uh, that's the book that we are dedicated to as a church, and we pray uh, that you might likewise be dedicated to it. You turn there to Titus chapter 1. As you turn quietly, I'm going to offer a word of prayer for us. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, there's no one like you, no God beside you, there's no other God. All the other gods are fiction of men's imagination, idols to be repented. You and you alone are worthy of our worship and adoration of our service and praise. We pray, even now, that you would speak to us. This is how we know that you are really God, because you speak. The idols are mute. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They're blind. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They're deaf. They have ears, but they cannot hear. And the people who worship them are like them, deaf, dumb, and blind. You're the God who speaks and the God who sees and the God who hears his people. So hear us this morning as we ask you to speak to us and, and see into our hearts and help us, O oh Lord, with our hearts. Give us faith this morning and encouragement and comfort and direction by your word. Build us up in the most holy faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Friday, my wife and I had a, a date day. We didn't got too old for date nights. Some of y'all laughing, just keep living. So a wonderful date for us starts about 4.30. We go to a movie. When the movie's over, it's about dinner time, so we go eat. By the time we're done with dinner, we, we home by 8.30. It ain't long for bed. That was a good night. This Friday, we went to see the movie Just Mercy. I don't know how many of you have seen it or read the book. Um, seeing Just Mercy left me with a lot of feelings. I was reminded of how intentional one has to be not to hate but to love. It's a choice we must make. I was grieved at injustice and at the same time made hopeful for change. Hope is a discipline we must practice. I was sad for the people and the families depicted. And the movie made me laugh with joy at the humanizing way that they were portrayed. I was deflated with a sense of powerlessness but energized to want to make a difference. Love, hate, 
grief, hope, sorrow, joy, weakness, strength. Pick any two emotional opposites, and I think I felt them watching the film. I thought about all that I had seen in the movie, the unlawful arrests, prosecutorial misconduct, cheating spouses, a fearful, self-protecting family friend, good officers wrongly terminated, bad officers re-elected, a culture of bigotry and racial hatred, a mother in fear, caring more for her son than the thousands oppressed, corrupt judges, district attorneys, and chiefs of police, elected and re-elected even when their corruption was exposed, people with mental illness, shell-shocked from fighting the country's wars, getting the death penalty rather than treatment, I thought about all of that as I left the theater and I asked myself, how in the world can we change it all? If I'm honest, I felt a little overwhelmed at the magnitude and the pervasiveness and the seriousness and the depth of sin and corruption, of injustice and unrighteousness? How in the world do you change it all? The Lord seemed to leave me with one overriding feeling and conviction. It's, it's this. The, the changes we need to see in people and in systems must be achieved by the gospel and by gospel people taking action. Now, that, if that doesn't sound new to you, I'm glad. But I don't mean what a lot of people mean when they say things like that. People say, the answer is the gospel, and you haven't even asked the question yet. People say, the answer is the gospel, and they seem to say that in such a way as to oppose doing anything. When people say the answer is the gospel and they haven't shared the gospel for as long as they can remember. I'm not saying that and I don't want us to say that as people who say it as a matter of Christian knees, of Christian speak, of the right Sunday school answer. I want us as a church to own that answer in truth, to believe it in truth, and to practice it in truth. Because it is the case that nothing changes the human heart so deep and so profoundly as the good news of Jesus Christ, as the wonderful news that though we were sinners, God gave his son to die for our sin, to suffer the judgment that we deserve, and three days later raised him from the grave to say, I, I approved of his sacrifice on your behalf. Nothing is as wonderful and as life-changing as the reality that we can be born again.
through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from sin. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, listen, beloved, that's the most important thing I have to say to you this morning. It really is the message that will change your life. It really is the the truth and the reality that changes the world, that God has loved us in such a way that he gave his son, his one and only son, to die for us. And through faith in him, we live again, a new life, a life that's pleasing to God, not of sin, but of righteousness, not of wickedness, but of holiness, not of selfishness, but of love. I want you to put your faith in that Jesus and to believe that message and to trust the promise of God to rescue you from his judgment, which is coming upon the world and has already begun. God wants you to believe that message and to trust him. If you do, he'll save you from his judgment and bring you into his love in forgiveness and adopt you as his very own child. If you hear nothing else this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, hear that Think about that, pray about that, respond to that by turning for sin and trusting in Jesus. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, you've heard that message a thousand times. Hopefully every Sunday that you've come here, you've heard that message. But are you invested in that message as if you really believe it is the message that changes lives and changes the world as we proclaim it and as we take action based upon it? Cliche Christianity is too widespread. Genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the kind of faith that takes action, is too seldom seen. If you're the type who says the answer is the gospel, but you don't share it, and it doesn't compel you to act, Stop saying the answer is the gospel. What I want to call us to this morning is a couple of actions that depend upon us sincerely believing that the way people change and the way the world changes is through the preaching and application of the good news that the Son of God has died for us and risen again. Our fourth M, which is multiplication, depends upon it. And the question becomes, how do we get the gospel to everyone, everywhere, so that it makes the difference that God intends? 
How do we get the gospel to everyone, everywhere, so that the good news of Jesus Christ makes the difference that God intends? Well, it's a matter of multiplication. We must multiply the number of godly church leaders and godly gospel churches in the world. And what I hope to do in the sermon this morning is to root our call to multiplication in the Bible and to call us then to renew commitment to multiplying church leaders and multiplying churches in order to make the gospel unavoidable in our generation. I want to ask and answer four questions. We'll spend the bulk of our time on the first question, so don't panic. Question number one, what's the goal? What's the goal? Question number two, why? Why multiply? Why have that goal? Question number three, who are we looking for to help us in this goal of multiplying? Who are we looking for? Who should have our eyes open to? Question number four, how do we hope to do it? How do we hope to actually take steps toward multiplication that make a difference in our community and the world? Look with me, bless you, brother, in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. Titus chapter 1. Verses 5 to 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and blameless. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine And also to rebuke those who contradict it. So what's our goal when we think about multiplication? Well, throughout our history as a church, we've been using Paul's letter to Titus as our church planting manual. You want to know what we're about as a church? All you need to do is spend time studying this letter. Our blueprint comes from this book, the book of the Bible called Titus. And from Titus, we have five M's, five objectives that define us as a church. The first is we want to spread the message of the gospel. Everything else flows from that. Without that, we're not a New Testament Christian church. The second is we want to show mercy to our neighbors and to one another. We want to be people of good works because that's the kind of people that the gospel actually creates. Third, then, we want to, our third M, is we want to shepherd each other to maturity. We come to Jesus, we come to new life, and all living things grow. And we are designed as a church, by God's design, we are called to help each other grow, to mature in the fullness of stature of Christ. Our fifth M, which we'll talk about, Lord willing, next week, is we want to send missionaries to the end of the earth. This is why we rejoice at things like the uh, students going to Zambia. But this morning, we're on our fourth M, and that is we want to seek to multiply. 
Well, that goal comes right from verse 5 of Titus 1. Notice what verse 5 says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus is a pastor. He's serving on an island called Crete. In in land area, Crete is a little over 3,200 square miles. That's about two times the size of Delaware. It's about 47 Washington, D.C.'s. That's the area that, or the, the island that, that Titus is serving on. Now, the apostle writes to Titus a singular overarching charge. Put things in order. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So you might ask yourselves the question, how many towns were there in Crete? How many towns are in an area the size of two Delawares or 47 Washington, D.C.'s? Well, the estimates range. On the, on the upper end, uh, you may have heard the name Homer, the classic poet in his uh, Iliad. He referred to Crete of the Hundred Towns. So it could be that there were a hundred cities in Crete at the time of the Apostle Paul. That'd be sort of the upper limit, if you will. But during the, the Greek period, the Hellenistic period, there were about 40 known towns in Crete that we have historical record of. And in the Roman period, which followed the Greek period, it's likely that somewhere between 20 and 40 towns were still around at the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. So, Titus is serving in an island nation with at least 20 towns, as much as 100 towns. And he's told to put things in order by planting uh, pastors, appointing elders in every town. That's his direction. Now, I think that also means he's to plant churches in every town because in the New Testament, there's no such thing as elders, kind of free agents in a city not connected to a church. So it seems to me Paul means for Titus to plant at least one church with at least two elders, notice it's plural, in each of the 20 to 100 towns in Crete. That's a glorious vision. That's a marvelous vision. In other words, Paul did not intend Titus to simply pastor a church. Paul intended Titus to pastor a pastor training church planting church. So that meant leading a movement of new church plants to see the gospel established in every town in Crete. God intended Titus to create a gospel ecology across the island, the entire island, that would result in 20 to 100 new churches with 40 to at least 200 new elders. So when I say a gospel ecology, I mean an environment in which the gospel feeds and grows and impacts the living conditions of the entire island in every town. That's Paul's vision. That's God's vision for Titus in Crete. Praise the Lord. Now, the first question I want to ask you this morning is, as a church and as an individual Christian, do we have that kind of ambition where the gospel is concerned? Are we comfortable simply being a church? 
Or are we restless with a godly and a holy restlessness such that we not only want to be a church, we want to be a church that trains pastors and plants other churches so that we establish in our city a gospel ecology that is so rich and abundant with gospel truth that it's impossible for people to live east of the river and not bump into the good news of Jesus Christ. Where we at, church? We've defined our Crete and mission as east of the Anacostia River. I wish I had a map right here. I hope you can visualize it. You know, D.C.'s like a diamond. There are two rivers running through it. The Potomac, we don't care about that. The Anacostia. <laughs> the Anacostia. We are east of the Anacostia River. You know how many neighborhoods are east of the Anacostia River? Anybody? I counted them Wednesday. It's 43. There are 43 neighborhoods east of the Anacostia River. In terms of our local ministry, this is where we want our heart and our efforts rooted. There are tons of things happening west of the Anacostia River. We need more gospel work east. One study found that between 2011 and 2017, there were 220 church plants in the greater Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. Six years, 220 plants. Sixty of those were non-English speaking church plants. Praise God. Praise God. So if you peel those off, there are another 160 church plants in that six-year period in the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. Now, just stop and praise God. That's a lot of church planting activity. Praise God. We ain't mad about that. We rejoice at that. We pray for the success of every one of those churches. But do you know how many of those churches were in an Anacostia or Deanwood or Lincoln Heights? Do you know how many of those churches were in a poor inner city neighborhood predominantly made up of people in black and brown skin? Out of 220, three. 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 And I think we account for two of them. So, I'm glad for the spread of the gospel west of the river, up in Maryland, all the way up to Baltimore, down into Virginia. Doesn't even include the statistics for Virginia. I'm thrilled about that. But people in the suburbs, yes, they need the gospel, but they're not the only ones who need the gospel. And I think what those numbers reveal is that unless there's some intentionality, then these neighborhoods will continue to be neglected. And unless there's some gospel courage, people won't come to the neighborhoods we love. It's hard to plant a church in the inner city. I get it. That's also why you ought to go. It's also why you ought to go. The writers of that report says this. Although the inner city poor population is not growing, it is becoming increasingly isolated from the church as thriving inner city African-American churches move to the suburbs to follow their constituents who are becoming middle income. Many of the churches left are older people not attracting a younger generation. Now, I want you to put these two things together. The, the chart shows that there is 
almost no new investment into these neighborhoods. And the quote illustrates that the gospel ecology is being depleted as churches move out of the neighborhoods. No new investment, existing investment moving out. I'm really glad to hear about increasing numbers of black folk becoming middle income. We only come up a little bit, a little bit. But if the gospel is uprooted and moved out to the suburbs, what's left where we are? So we're doing great at planting churches. We're doing great, we meaning the the church world at large. We're doing great at serving international and diverse populations. Praise God. We're not doing so great at planting churches in poor black and brown neighborhoods. So this is what I want to be our goal. I don't get to decide this unilaterally. I ain't Jesus. But this is what I want to push on you. And you can push back if you like, and I'm going to push back again. And we'll figure it out, right? This this is what I think should be our goal. To develop and appoint enough elders and churches to have well-shepherded gospel congregations accessible to each of the 43 neighborhoods east of the river. That's all right. I brought my amen with me. It's all right. To develop and appoint enough elders, pastors, and plant enough churches so that we have well-shepherded gospel congregations accessible to each of the 43 neighborhoods east of the Anacostia River. So far, ARC is located here in Anacostia and Fairlawn. Mercy of Christ is up north, the sort of northernmost part of um, east of the river, up in the Deanwood, Lincoln Heights area. I assume there are other good churches like New Macedonia and so on who are not church plants, been around a long time, doing good gospel work. So it's not down to just us. Praise God for them too. But if you look at that map, we would only be able to put two pins in that map with regard to new gospel work in our part of the city since. Since. So maybe we should be praying about and thinking about planting the church in the southernmost part of east of the river. Bellevue, Washington Heights, come on up into uh, Congress Heights. These were our goals two years ago when we did this series called The State of Our Union. 2018, we set a few goals. We said in three years, we wanted to have seven to ten pastors actively, effectively, and joyfully serving. We got four. When we had that goal, I think there were two of us. And we were scared that that might be over in a minute. Uh, so we got four. We're going the right way. We said also in three years, by 2021, we wanted to have five or more deacons joyfully serving. And praise God, that's what we got. At the time, we had one. Now, now there are five deacons. The Lord is providing for us. We said we wanted to plant at least one other church by 2020 and five other churches by 2025. So by God's grace, we've hit part of our goals, and now we're standing here in eyeshot, earshot of, of another goal of, of planting by 2021. So I think that should still be our ambition. That should be our prayer to God. We should ask the Father to raise up a planter and at least one other elder who would lead a new work somewhere east of the river. That's our what? So the question is, why? 
Why do this? Well, you've heard part of the why already. We want to create a gospel ecology east of the river, but that's not the only thing. It's not simply about numbers, and it's not simply about geography and covering territory, but it is the the establishment of godly shepherds and well-ordered congregations that actually produces the change that we wish to see in individuals and communities. So let me tick off four other whys from Titus real quick. Number one, it's godly leaders that bring order to the church. That's what we've seen in verse five. A disordered church, think of 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, has a reverse witness. People see the disorder and they're like, that's madness. A well-ordered church, a well-led church, a well-instructed church where people are able to understand the gospel and the character and nature of God leads people, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, to say, surely God is among those people. To stand in awe. And so we want to see order brought to God's church, reform and strength and health. Number two, godly leaders and well-ordered churches then, as I was saying, provide instruction and protect the gospel. Look at Titus 1, verses 9 to 11. He, the pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Verses 10 and 11 tells us why. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. So if you have a situation where the church isn't well ordered and not shepherded by godly men, guess who comes in? Not shepherds, but wolves. You know how to tell the difference between a wolf and a sheep? by what they eat. A shepherd doesn't eat the sheep. A wolf feeds on them, preys on them. And that's what Paul is concerned about here. And you know where wolves go to feed most frequently early on in their ministries? Poor neighborhoods to to manipulate the hopelessness, the despair, and the need for their own gain. We need healthy churches in unhealthy places. Number three, godly leaders in well-ordered churches provide discipleship and and encourage good works. That's the argument in Titus 2 verses 1 to 14. We saw that the other day. And number four, godly leaders in well-ordered churches provide missional focus and church unity. Look at chapter 3 verses 8 to 11. Paul writes there, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. See, the good news creates good work people, right? The pastor and the church should be focused on these good works, devoted to them. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now we get the contrast beginning in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, Twitter, and quarrels about the law. (laughs) For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You see a a healthy church, a well-ordered church with godly leaders? 
keeps us focused on the mission the Lord has given us in the proclamation of the gospel and the doing of good works and keeps us away from the distraction of so much argumentation and division, which sadly is, is so, so common among God's people. So we want to multiply because in that multiplication, we find godly leaders in gospel churches so that we have order inside the church. We protect the gospel from error. We provide necessary discipleship and good works, and we remain focused on our mission and unified as we pursue it. This is how we build a gospel ecology that impacts people and neighborhoods and systems east of the river. This is the slow route. And I say that because I don't want you to be discouraged at the pace. Yeah, one moment. <laughs> this is the slow route. <laughs> Even Siri helping me this morning. <laughs> this is the slow route, but it's the deep route. It's the lasting route. It's not a quick fix. So let me move to a third question. Uh, who do we need then in order to multiply in this way? Well, it's sad, but the gospel can't be trusted in just everybody's hands. The good news that saves us is for everybody. But that good news cannot be multiplied and protected by just any pair of hands. We need people of character and pure motive. So in order to multiply successfully, we need spiritually qualified leaders who eagerly want to do the work from a pure motive. Spiritually qualified leaders who eagerly want to do the work from a pure motive. We see the spiritual qualifications there in Titus 1, verses 6 to 8. I won't read them again, but these are the biblical qualifications for pastors. This is not the only place where we see such qualifications. So in 1 Timothy 3, chapter, uh, verses 1, down to about verse 13, Paul gives qualifications also for deacons as well as pastors, and I believe deaconesses, women deacons there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We see qualifications also in Acts chapter 6. You remember there in verse 1, the church is growing pretty rapidly. Verse 2, there's a, a disruption that erupts between the Greek-speaking widows and the Hebrew-speaking widows. It, it threatens the unity of the church. Verse 3, the apostle says, listen, it's not good for us to leave the ministry of word and prayer. You guys actually pick uh, seven people to, to attend to this matter of the widow's distribution. Verse 3 gives the qualifications. There to be people filled with the Spirit and so on. Right? So the Bible generally gives emphasis to character when it comes to qualification for ministry. Doesn't give emphasis to gifting. That's important. Because we live in a church context that loves celebrity and gifting and turns a blind eye often to character. The Bible peers at character and God says, I'm the one who gives you the gift. So we are meant to attend to characters, spiritually qualified leaders. Now, lest you think this is an S on the chest of the leaders, let me point something out. When you look at 1 Timothy 3, when you look at Titus 1, when you look at the qualifications for pastors and deacons, everything that's required of a spiritual leader except one thing, able to teach, every other characteristic somewhere else in the New Testament is required of all Christians. 
So these are not super Christians. These are Christians who are sufficiently mature in Christian character that they become examples to other Christians. But, put it this way, these things then, these qualifications then, ought to be the aspiration of every Christian, whether or not they're ever called to lead. So if you're a sister here, and you're looking at the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 for deaconesses, that's your list of who you want to be in Christ. If you're a brother here and you're looking at the list in Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3, that's your list of who you ought to be as a man of God. Whether or not you are called to lead, that's the character you and I are meant to have. So, in one sense, here's what I want to suggest to you. Every person in this room who's a member of ARC ought to aspire to have the qualities of godly leaders, whether or not they become leaders. And this is how we turn the entire church into a pipeline for leaders in church plants. Every member in the church is looking to live this godly way, to have this character set out for us in the scripture. Now, I said in almost all the texts that address qualification, the emphasis is on character. There's one exception to that. First Peter chapter 5. And this is where I get the second half of that statement from, eager to do the work from pure motive. First Peter chapter 5, Peter writes this. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, here's his exhortation. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Paul's list normally focus on qualification. Peter's exhortation focuses on the pastor's work and how they do that work. The pastor's work can be summed up in one word, shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And he clarifies shepherding with that next phrase, exercising oversight. But he doesn't want us to sort of get the wrong idea about oversight, what leadership in the kingdom involves. Jesus says that we would not lord it over one another. So it's not about arrogating power to ourselves and getting our way. How ought the shepherds of God to shepherd the sheep? Notice what he says there. The pastor must do this willingly as God would have them. Eagerly. And as an example to the flock, they are not to be forced into the role, so not under compulsion. And they're not to do it for a shameful gain. That gain could be monetary. That gain could be popularity and status. There are lots of shameful forms of gain that people seek out when it comes to leadership. But it's not to be that motive and it's not to be domineering, trying to control everything. So we're not looking for people who are resistant to leadership, greedy for money or status, or overbearing and controlling. 
You think about it, that's the exact opposite of Jesus, isn't it? We want to multiply willing, eager, exemplary pastors and deacons who shepherd the flock of God. That's the kind of people we need in order to successfully plant gospel churches in neighborhoods east of the river and beyond. Spiritually qualified leaders who are eager to do the work from a pure motive. Two questions for you. Number one. Is that your character? If not, how do you need to grow? Number two, have you given honest prayer to discern whether to pursue leadership character? Have you given that honest thought, intentional thought, prayerful thought? Or are you just kind of coasting toward what you hope will one day be maturity? We don't drift to godliness, beloved. We don't. We have to press toward it. We have to push toward it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Fear there be that find it. So, how are you curating your soul? Are you simply collecting everything that comes to your address? Or are you weeding out representations, weeding out displays that are contrary to Christ and curating and exhibiting only those qualities that, that actually magnify the Lord and reflect His presence in your life? Is that, is that your attitude and habit of heart? Are you cultivating these qualities and you might be able to say with great gladness and some measure of appropriate confidence, here I am, Lord, send me. In other words, if, if I were to approach you today and say, hey, I think you should think about leadership. If your answer had to be, I'm not ready, I'm encouraging you to think about that as a problem. It's a problem. Unless you've only been a Christian for a little while. If you've been a Christian a number of years, you've been walking with the Lord, you know the truth, you've been putting your nose in the book and, and seeking him in prayer. If I were to come to you and say, hey, you need to think about leadership and you had to say, I'm not ready. I think you need to recognize then that, that there's a, a deficiency somewhere that we need God's grace for. We need God to address and to help us grow in and we need to be intentional about that. So let's move to our last question. How do we hope to do this? How do we hope to multiply leaders and churches? How do we want to produce these things? I want to suggest that we need to create two pipelines. One for pastors and deacons. And one for church planting. There are a lot of things that go into this. But in general terms, I want to give you how I how, sort of display for you how I think about this. Let's start with the leader development pipeline. You might think of it as consisting of, of three junctures, of, of three phases. Uh, the first phase is very simply identifying. That is, having a radar that, that notices people who seem to be ready for leadership. As I said, we need a process 
that is applicable to the entire membership if, in fact, I'm exhorting us to think of ourselves as members, as all of us potentially, you know, in this pipeline. So at the bottom, very basic, I'm sort of searching for two things, membership and attendance and commitment and service. So you can't be a leader in a church if you're not a member of a church. It's a good reason to join a church, right? Doesn't do any good if LeBron James is the best player in the world. I mean, that's it, if. If LeBron James is the best player in the world, doesn't do any good if he's not on anybody's roster. He may be in the stadium, but he can't put on a uniform if he's not on the team, right? So averaging the triple-double, stuffing stats, what he could do in his potential is lost, if he's not actually on the roster. And so it is with a Christian. If you are a Christian who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are not a member of a local church, you are sidelining yourself. So membership and attendance. You can't shepherd people you're not with. You can't grow if you don't attend. Right? You can't hear the word of God and be shaped by it if you're somewhere else. And oh, I know, I know, I got an iPod, I listen to my favorite preacher. Don't stop doing that, but don't use that as a replacement for being shaped together with the family of God in one place. I love David Platt as a preacher and a brother. I like to listen to him. He does good things for my heart. But his preaching ain't shaping this church. The fact that I listen to him doesn't change your life. We need our lives changed together. To do that, we need to sit under the word together and to be together and to hear the same things. And we need not to merely be an attender, but we need to be committed and serve. Now, this is not rebuke because I think for a little small church like ours, boy, it's just full of servants, right? So this is encouragement to do it more and more as the day of Christ comes. But commit to attendance, Sunday school, Sunday morning, attend to, commit to um, Thursday night Bible study, commit to a small group if Thursday night Bible study doesn't work for you. Be committed in giving. Be committed in discipling others. Serve others. So the quickest way to fall off this pastor's um, the, the, the four pastors here, the quickest way to fall off our radar as a potential leader is to not be present and not be serving. Now you're making the cut. All right, so that's the first thing, identify. Secondly, then inquire. You need to have some conversations. So continue to serve, but we, we step up the conversation about whether or not that's your gifting. Or not that's fruitful and edifying. You have a sense of call. So we move to sort of character and subjective calling. Listen, historically, a calling to ministry has two parts. It has an internal subjective calling. And we'll talk about this in a moment. It also has an external objective calling. So that person feels called to an area of service and the church itself confirms that calling. When you have both those pieces, not one half or the other, both of those pieces together, there you have a calling. And so what we're trying to discern as we move into that second and into that third phase is a sense of calling. So thirdly, what we're looking at is training, pouring into the person in some way, eventually nominating that person to the membership. If, if indeed they, we, we have that sense that they may be called and the membership makes that, that objective calling part and then into leadership. So that's the pipeline. And every member in this church 
needs to be in that pipeline. Because every member in this church needs to be, you, you are a member, <laughs> need to attend, be committed, and serving. One last thing on behalf of a couple of our ministries. A couple of our ministries um, are struggling a little bit with volunteers. Now, if the gospel creates people of good works, we should really not have volunteer problems. We should not be twisting arms. If we want to have a gospel ministry to our children, we need to volunteer for that ministry. If we want to have a, a ministry of hospitality that welcomes newcomers and welcomes strangers and, and extends a, a warm hand to people who maybe don't yet know Jesus, we should not be struggling for volunteers in hospitality. Ushers, greeters, sound. Now, again, that's not reproof because some of you are volunteering in two, three ministries. Praise God. You need rest. <laughs> but some of us are needing to step up. Okay? So that's the pipeline. Everybody ought to be at least in that first part of the pipeline. And in God's providence, we should be progressing through. Now, none of this, as I said, is hurried. We want to obey the Bible's instructions not to lay hands on any man hastily. First Timothy 5, 22. But now what about church planting? Similar kind of pipeline. We'll move through this quickly. Five sort of informal phases in my own head and in the elders' heads. Number one, the first thing to discern is interest in planting. Is there a qualified leader who, who might wish to plant? Uh, is there an area or a neighborhood identified in which to plant? Are there some people who are interested to go out with that leader and with that team to, to plant, to spread the gospel in that way? When there is sufficient critical uh, sort of interest, then we move to planning. We've got a planter and or a team identified. Maybe we bring that person onto the staff for a season in a residency or an internship. Uh, then we use some period of time to develop a, a strategic plan for the plant and to do some fundraising. And that moves us into forming. There's evangelizing of the target area, building relationships there. There's gathering interested people for vision meetings and preparation there's organizing of the church. You've got to think through things like a constitution and uh, a statement of faith and so on. And then that forming, when it's complete, leads to launching. And that's where we have the initial leadership established, the initial membership established. Uh, that's where we begin to have public services. And this next phase cannot be left off. What we want to do is be a church planting church that plants churches that plant other churches. And so we want those churches to get to the point where they can reload and reproduce and begin to cycle again. That's the, those are the pipelines. And in some sense, we all ought to be in all of those pipelines. But let me come back to the statistics for the Baltimore-Washington area as we close. As a church, ARC can't do all the planting that needs to be done all by ourselves. We wouldn't want to do it that way anyway. Instead, we want to partner with like-minded churches of all backgrounds to see the gospel go to our neighborhoods. Neighborhoods that are predominantly poor, predominantly black and brown. Too often those things are associated. We want to go to places that have significant resource needs, 
and where very little gospel work is happening or where we just need infusion of, of fresh gospel work. That's why the, the pastors uh, have been praying for and working on development of a, of a new church planting and church revitalization network that we're calling the Crete Collective. Get it right from Titus. Titus is in Crete. Crete is a proxy for the kinds of neighborhoods that are neglected. I've been meeting with seven pastors around the country. Some of them you will know, men like John O. from Cornerstone in Atlanta, Brian Davis in Risen Christ in Philly, um, Louis Love, my brother on the front porch, pastor church up in Chicago, that area. And we've been praying together and plotting together, planning and hoping together about the formation of a network that would, that would have this focus, to plant and revitalize churches in under-resourced areas that are predominantly black and brown. Because when we look at the maps and we look at the investments, that's the mix of things that are just not being addressed. Right? Plenty of new work in suburbs, plenty of new work in gentrified, redeveloped areas of the city. We don't begrudge any of that work. We're thrilled about it. We want to pull together churches of different backgrounds and different ethnic compositions to share a common missional focus to reach unreached neighborhoods in our own cities. And starting with our cities, if God would bless it, to reach similarly situated neighborhoods around the world. That's the Creek Collective. And I want to invite us to to pray for that. The Lord would bless that. We just had a, a vision meeting, a vision retreat in New York Uh, Two weeks ago, we took a look at the work that uh, Tim Keller and Redeemer is doing in their City to City initiative. Lord willing, we'll go out to L.A. and Arizona um, sometime around May to take a look at a couple of other initiatives as we sort of lay the groundwork for what the Lord might do with the Creek Collective. I would love, because I love this church, and, and not because I think this is the only good church, even in our neighborhood, I don't, but I do love this church the most. And I am most appreciative of God's work in this church. I would love to see churches like ARC just replicated throughout Southeast and replicated throughout neighborhoods like Southeast around the country. Not as a matter of pride, but as a matter of thankfulness to God for what he's been doing in our lives. I think that's worth pursuing. I think that's worth praying for and investing in. So pray that this would take shape, that God would bless it. And if you want to talk more about it, let me know at any time. So three things as we close, I want to ask you to commit to. Number one, commit to praying for God's grace and blessing on ARC to multiply as he intends us to do. And as a start, pray that God would allow us to plant a new church east of the river sometimes in the next year or so. Number two, commit to asking God how you might grow in character and competence in order to be available to him as a leader here at ARC and perhaps beyond ARC um, in planting and other times and works. And number three, as I just asked, would you commit to praying for the Creek Collective and God's guidance, blessing, and provision for a fresh work through it? So let's conclude where we started. The changes we need to see in people and in systems must be achieved by the gospel and by gospel people doing stuff. 
until we make the gospel unavoidable, people will be in danger of God's judgment and the ravishing fury of an unjust world system. But the good news is our king has come. His kingdom has broken into this world. And we get to see that kingdom extended through the work of the gospel as God gives us grace. Let's pray together. <laughs> Father, we want to be Bebe's kids. We don't want to die, we want to multiply. <laughs> we want to seem to be everywhere and unavoidable, even hard-headed for the gospel. We do want to have a sense that this is a small world <laughs> and that it belongs to you. Help us, O oh Lord, to be faithful, to really believe the gospel to the point of staking our lives on it, investing our resources in it, Lord, and taking action because of it. We'll do this if you give us grace. Please, Lord, pour out your grace upon us and use us for the spread of your fame. In Jesus' name, amen.